This is the Ordinary Christian Podcast, a podcast dedicated to real people like you seeking to live out your Christian faith in the ordinary aspects of everyday life. My name is Craig Thompson, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm a husband, father, pastor, and writer. I hope that this podcast will help you to use the margins of your everyday life to live more intentionally for Jesus. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. Today I have with me uh, Tom Mulliken. Tom is a lawyer here in Camden, South Carolina. That's a bit of an understatement about who he is and what he does. I've gotten to know Tom just a little bit in the past few months um, as he's uh, been working on uh, PhD research on climate change and the evangelical church, and that's what I'm going to talk to him about. But in addition to that work and his, his work in law, Tom is married to Virginia Ann. They have four grown kids, and he, he shared with me he's got four other kids that he helped to raise as part of a, a group home here. And, and more than anything else in the world, he's got two grandkids that uh, seem to uh, dictate most of what he does with his life. But Tom Mulliken, thank you so much for joining with me today on the Ordinary Christian Podcast. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's uh, even better to hear you preach on Sunday at Malvern Hill. It's a beautiful community and just was delighted to be welcomed into your church. Well, brother, I, I think you probably make a little more of me than you should, but uh, um, certainly we were glad to have you this past Sunday. It was it was uh, fun for me to see you sitting there on Sunday morning because um, we scheduled this a few weeks ago, so uh, you and I got to catch up a little bit off air about uh, about your visit with us. Um, but uh, uh, I, I gave a very um, toned down introduction of kind of who you are and what you've done. Uh, you've dabbled in some politics. Um, I don't even know if that's a fair way to say it, but you, and, and lots of other things. Can you give us a, a, a brief overview of kind of, um, I don't want to say who Tom Mulliken is, because I don't think that's fair. I'd, I'd rather say brief overview of some of the things that you've been a part of that uh, might uh, help you to have some expertise as it relates to this conversation. I'd be happy to, and uh, thank you for having me on. The environment is is an issue I've, I've been involved in. This is my 41st year. I, I started as a staffer in the United States Senate on the NOAA subcommittee, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration subcommittee. And my boss then was one of the authors that created NOAA. And so I started there and I uh, came back, went to law school and have been in this area now for several decades. I do continue to practice law and it's mostly a corporate practice. I represent energy intensive companies Energy generation, energy generators, but I'm also on the faculty of two universities. I'm a research professor in the doctoral program at Coastal Carolina University in the School of Coastal Environment, and I'm also an associate professor at the University of San Francisco Quito, and I teach a class in the Galapagos every month, every year for a month on climate change. So I I serve on those two faculties. Uh, I have served as an expert for National Geographic and led an expedition for them. And I'm a fellow in the, um, in the National Royal Geologic Society in London and in uh, a couple other organizations here in the United States. I, this is where I spend most of my time. So when do you have time to be a lawyer? Um, I, my, it all sort of converges. What, what I do seems sort of disjunctive. But even with my dissertation now in seminary on the evangelical voice and global climate change, I, I'm constantly reading and studying in this area. 
and it's it's why I get hired. Oftentimes, the the work that I do is being brought in to to negotiate very differing positions. I finished a, a major project in Fiji a couple of years ago, where the UN had me come in on a seabed mining project and craft uh, regulations that dealt with seabed mining. It was really a, a fight between the native Fijians, the fishermen, the miners, which were Australian and Chinese, and it was multi-stakeholder. Um, it, that project really kind of deals with what I, the kind of conflict I deal with, which is sums up with everyone has a voice in the environment. And I think that sometimes you have single stakeholders that try to run roughshod on one side or the other. And it's really that balance that we're looking for. And virtually any project for years, I had an office in Fort Worth and negotiated on issues for major energy companies down there. And just like in life, balance is difficult. Uh, environment is in a secular world is not really a whole lot different than theologically. You, you find in Genesis in this second chapter, verse 15, where it said that the Lord put man in his, gar- in his garden to work and to protect it. And yet you see theologically, just like in the secular world, some people are all about working it. Some people are all about protecting it. But the truth is there are different sides of the same coin. And if you look at what goes on in so many of these debates, people have chosen one side or the other, and they've built doctrine around both. And so in the secular world that I live in with climate, for the last 30 years, you really had you had two positions that you could assume. You could either be in the crowd that was Armageddon, that carbon concentration when it goes over 400 parts per million, the world was coming to an end, that crowd, or you could be in the crowd on the far right-hand side that the climate was not changing. And the truth is neither one of those are correct. And the unfortunate thing is there's a lot of people in the middle that simply want an opportunity to live in an environment with clean air and clean water and be able to provide for their family. And the good news is environmental sustainability is not mutually exclusive from economic sustainability. As I've traveled around the world, the places where you go that have the strongest economies have the most protected environments. Those two things are are not only mutually exclusive, they're coupled and you can't decouple them. And so bringing people together is not really so much of pulling them together on a straight line continuum, but lifting them up to higher ground and helping them understand these issues. For people that say the climate is not changing, and I'm a, I'm a fiscal conservative. The companies I represent are fiscally conservative. And it's funny because as soon as I say I'm an environmental attorney, as you know, we talked about it, people immediately expect me to show up and with a ponytail and a tie-dyed t-shirt. And y'all can't see him. I can assure you there is no ponytail. Yeah, there's not a bit of hair on my head. a lot of shine off of that head. (laughs) It's not an intellect. It's just a bald head. (laughs) So what I've tried to do is help craft reasonable policies where we can demonstrate that it is actually more profitable to be more protected. More profitable to be more protected. 
and I'm, I'm going to call a timeout. So um, those of you that haven't figured this out yet, and I, I again, I, I just want to clarify, Tom and I, uh, maybe one day we can be great friends. We, we're not at this point. We've only known one another for a, a short period of time. But what I can tell you is that in that short period of time, what I've learned is that this is his passion. Right. This is not. <laughs> this is you're you're one of those those people that have, have had an opportunity to turn your passion into your vocation. Right. This is your avocation and your vocation seem to run parallel uh, with one another. It's, it's it's a really neat thing. So um, and I, I laugh a little bit as as he uh, I, I know some of, of of those clients and it's <laughs> he says fiscal conservative and I just want want to make sure that people understand that this is a guy who's. Uh, um, if if you you talk with him about some of those things, your head kind of spins because you scratch your head and go, "Wait a minute, you, 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 how, how does how does environmentalism run alongside these things?" And it's it's because for you, this idea of 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 man working in God's garden of of dominion that God has given that our 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 our, our responsibility to maintain and exercise dominion over creation runs parallel to that, that goal of human flourishing that we should seek to, to pursue as, as God's people. Is it, am I right? Yes, sir. I think that it's very consistent with, with scripture. I understand through my research that there, that I would say there's very sound reasons, theological reasons why some have taken a pass on the issue of, of God's garden through a, sort of more of a negative eschatology where the in revelation where the world is going to come to an end, there'll be a new earth. But I think to get there, you've got to pass over a lot of scripture that talks about protecting the Lord's garden. Uh, you shall not pollute the land. I mean, I could walk you through virtually every book of the Bible, including the book of revelation, which talks about those that do damage to earth mm. will be separated and judged harshly. Mm. So that I think that really the theological examination that needs to be developed is exactly the same, which is what is that balance? How do we protect nature without deifying nature? Because if you go back into Old Testament, people were deifying nature and there was there was harsh. The Lord was very harsh about that. Um, we're not talking about deifying nature. We're talking about protecting the very words out of Scripture we're talking about protecting the Lord's garden so that we can work in that garden, so that we can work in that garden. And these things, again, are not mutually exclusive. It's much more complicated, but they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, I am. Um, I'm, I'm hearing all of this. Um, I would like, if it's okay with you, let's, let's, we're going to come back, circle back around to the theology issue. Can we dig into some of the nuts and bolts um, for folks that are listening to this? I'll just be honest. Most of the people that are, that are going to listen to this podcast are, are going to be more um, politically, probably more right-leaning. Um, so, uh, but can we dig into maybe some of those, those questions related to just sort of the environment, creation, care? Um, but before we jump back to the, the theology issues, let's talk about some of the realities. So you, you, you said that, hey, climate change is a reality. What, what do you say, before we ask another question, what do you say to those people that say, hey, the, the world's just, you know, climate change isn't a reality? How do you speak to that? My serious response to that would be to please understand that the climate has changed throughout a lot of time. Uh, we know that uh, for, it's, it's demonstrable. We, we know that there, there are core samples being taken in Antarctica 
where I've been many times that demonstrates that Antarctica used to be like the temperament of a Caribbean island. We know that the sand hills where you and I live was at one point the coastline for the United States. We'd live on, on coastal property. We know all these things. We know that throughout all time, there's been tremendous vicissitudes of time of, of uh, where the climate is heated and cooled. And so really, I will tell you this, and hopefully this gives some comfort to people who have taken that position. And I, I, I didn't, this isn't something that I came up with. So I want to give credit to the scientists. I was in the Nabib Desert in Africa, the oldest desert on earth. And I was having this conversation with a scientist and he said, Tom, if you really want to put a sharper edge on this conversation, what you should talk about is the real issue is not whether the climate is changing, but to what degree have humans actions amplified global climate change? Because we're talking about degrees. And when we talk about the balance of earth, and I, I, we'll come back to the theology, but there's a careful balance. And when we're talking about climate change, let me just spend a couple minutes on that. NASA, and I would encourage people as they listen, go to the NASA website and, you, and, and look at the atmosphere. The atmosphere is a thin blanket that's wrapped around Earth. And that really is the blanket that God set out that allows for the, for the climate of Earth to be regulated. And if you view it in their words are a thin blanket, and I like that because if you think of a thin blanket, what, what makes up that blanket? What makes up that blanket is the greenhouse gases. That's why they call it the greenhouse effect. And those greenhouse gases rise into the atmosphere and they're knitted together to create that blanket. So the more greenhouse gases you release, the thicker that blanket is. And that blanket then keeps the sun's heat pushed down against the earth. So you imagine uh, sun rays coming down, hitting the earth, bouncing off the atmosphere and staying pressed against the earth. The thicker the blanket, the more that the heat is pressed against the earth. So that's at a macro level, Craig. And so the, there's a lot of problems. So at a macro level, we talk about the greenhouse effect, and I'll come back to that. But then that macro level, it manifests differently on a micro level, different places around the earth. And this also complicates the conversation. So let me say for your listeners that I've spoken all over the world on this, and I always start this way. Thank you for having me come in to talk about climate and the greenhouse gases. Which one would you like me to talk about? And so if they don't know, don't be embarrassed because that question's never been answered right. And I'm not going to call my friends out at Oxford University or, or Trinity or Stanford. But people don't, some of the ones that are most passionate on the left about reducing greenhouse gases don't know what the greenhouse gases are. So what I'm going to break this thing down so that we can begin to have an informed conversation is there are six gases, which I'm going to give you in just a moment. And once you know those, then you need to know where they're coming from. Because just for an old boy from Kershaw County, if you don't know what they are and you don't know what they're coming from, you're going to have a hard time reducing them. Okay? So the six greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane, those are three naturally occurring. And then you have three synthetic gases meaning man-made gases, perfluorocarbon, hydrofluorocarbon, 
sulfur hexafluoride. Now, there are other greenhouse gases, but those are the six the UN measures. And then those six are coming from six sources. And those six sources are energy, industry, agriculture, commercial, residential, transportation. So that six gases, six sources. So now if you, we recognize we're no longer modeling like 40 years ago when I started looking at this, it was an academic conversation. We have a macro issue that impacts locally at a micro level differently. South Carolina, here where we are, we deal with it manifesting with three concurrent problems. We have coastal erosion. It used to be that people talked about sea level rises. This is what we think. What we know now is that sea level is rising a little less than four millimeters a year, which doesn't sound like a lot. And we'll come back to that. So we have coastal erosion. And with coastal erosion, we have saltwater intrusion into our freshwater supply. So just to digress on that, Earth is made up of 70% water, but only 2.7% is freshwater, consumable by humans. About 70% of our body is water. It's an important piece of uh, humanity. But of that 2.7, 1.7% of that is captured in Greenland and Antarctica and, and the glaciers around the world. So we're dealing with about 1% of the total is freshwater. So when you have saltwater intrusion, that becomes a, a big issue. Coastal erosion, saltwater intrusion. We also have flooding down to the coast. If we, if you and I drove down to Charleston during a heavy rain, they have what they call a nuisance flooding. Large parts of coastal cities flood when it rains hard because there's nowhere for the water to go anymore because of sea level rise. It's flooding along this, and that becomes a problem. We have so these coastal erosion, nuisance flooding, and flooding in South Carolina coming from storms up through the Gulf that drop their water into North Carolina and come into the South Carolina watershed. So extreme weather, coastal erosion, nuisance flooding, and flooding from the Gulf. And so we're no longer talking. You and I lived we haven't known each other well, but going back to the thousand year flood, I, I retired as a major general commander of the, of the state guard. We, I commanded during that thousand year flood. We had people all over the state every year since 2015, we've had major flooding in the state. And Craig, that's not an academic conversation. That's water in the first floor of a lot of people's homes, right. people being in the poorest parts of our state. I know people who were put out of their home in 2015 that still don't have a home. So when we talk about this, and I gave you a very long answer to what do I tell people that say the climate has not changed yet. I encourage them, please, let me help you make an argument. But please don't say the climate's not changing because people won't take you serious. We can say that humans aren't the only reason for it which is a very legitimate defensible position. Because here's a, here's a data point, Craig, that the people on the far left in the political conversation absolutely hate for me to say. If I went down the street and I asked 100 people who, and I happen to run into people who cared enough to read, 
How much of greenhouse gases that are released every year come from humans? Uh, you told me one time. I think it's like 1%, wasn't it? It's lo- less than 6%. Oh, I didn't know. And, and it, it's I didn't like listen. I'm people, sorry. Yeah, most people think that humans release all of it because the media hypes this thing to where you would think that it's all, and scientists confuse people because they call it anthropogenic interference. That means what us guys are releasing. Well, let me let me ask you this. So, so it's six, and I, I'm gonna ask you a question without prompting. You might not know, and if you don't, I apologize for putting you on the spot. But it's six percent that you're saying that we we're responsible for today. A hundred years ago, what percentage were was were humans responsible for? A hundred years ago, the 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 date that typically is the date that people start assigning is. Like 1880, which was the, the beginning industrial of, revolution. Yeah. yeah, so it's probably would be. It probably wouldn't have been a whole lot. It might have been more then, okay. because we had less efficient industrial operations. Okay, so 100. Do we know what it was 140 years ago? 140 years before it would have been something less than six percent. Okay, yeah. Okay. All right. So we've we've established that that climate the climate is changing. We don't use the term global warming anymore. Um, climate change. The question does continue to be brought up as to whether or not how how much do humans actually impact that? What what role do humans have in that? And, and that's what you said. We we we're, we're responsible for six percent. Can we reduce our six percent? That's that's at least a fair question. Uh, but one of the things that you've even shared with me, I thought was very insightful. <clears throat> climate change is is macro, but it's also micro, which means it's it's global, but it's also local. And those things that have a, a negative impact, for instance, in South Carolina, might not have the same negative impact, or at least not exactly the same impact on in other parts of the world, right? So, um, what what we see sea rise that, that that affects global areas, which is is concerning because so much of the world population lives along the coasts, and I do understand that. But what about those interior places where, um, like like in a desert, do we see? A greater um, does it become more arid and hot, or do we see more access to, to water in those places? What happens? What happens in um, Latvia, where friends of mine live, where you know it's it's super cold and snowing all the time? So the the general areas that you see <clears throat> climate impacting at a micro level are sea level rise, the the consequences of extreme storms that I mentioned, but desertification, deserts expanding. So like in the west. The Mojave deserts around the world, they are getting larger, reclaiming other parts surrounding area that weren't desert, desertification and increased wildfires. When we see, I think we're, we just burned 8 million acres out west recently in Northern California and Oregon. There are some areas, and we've spoken about that, that would, would likely, from human impacts, survivability in areas that are that are and that's a still a complicated conversation it's very easy to be flippant about it but in some of the arctic areas it might get warmer and more comfortable but when we change those ecosystems we don't really know what we're going to do right we we begin to change the flora the fauna the things that these these populations have become accustomed to living with Mm -hmm. because the animals and the plants will change yeah it doesn't mean it's a bad thing and, and the Lord will provide, but it does mean that it's going to impact human populations. 
Well, let's shift our, our conversation just a minute. So we talked about the global thing. What we do know, uh, at least what we know in, in the Americas, let's, let's say that, what we know in the Americas, in, in, in North America, we know that we are improving in the area of greenhouse emissions. We know that. We know that in other places, we're not seeing that level of improvement yet, at least in developing areas, India, China, still bad. But we know that, for instance, um, theoretically, at least, with the advent of, of electric vehicle technology, we're going to see reduced carbon emissions, theoretically. You know, General Motors, what they say last week, by 2035, they're going to be an all-electric fleet. Uh, of course, there's lots of other things that come along with that that are potentially environmental hazards. That's what we're going to always find ourselves battling against, isn't it? Like, we, we're going to be wrestling with, as we progress, we're going to constantly be wrestling with, what does it look like? So, you got the macro level, but I think that a lot of times what really impacts in, 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 in our thinking is more the micro level, right? The, 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 the pile of tires at the end of my street that sometimes we don't necessarily equate with our, our exercising of dominion, but all of those things come together, right? Yes. And, and, and what I've, what I've come to understand in 40 years of being in the environment, and I, I love, and I know we're not going there yet, but I got to say, John Calvin said that nature is but the mirror image of his divinity. Is it the Lord is omniscient? He is omnipotent. And this thing does work in a careful balance. When we leave, when we leave litter and pollution along the side of the road, I've spent a lot of the last two years as chairman of the South Carolina Floodwater Commission, cleaning rivers and creeks. And what I have found are things, pretty much anything that could be washed out of somebody's carport, should include gas cans, antifreeze, paint thinner, these kind of things that normal garages would have these things. So why does that give me pause for concern? Because they are, they're, they're washed out into a creek that's unprotected, the products then, these are all hazardous. They're all hazardous and they're leaching down into our aquifers. And in many instances, a large part of South Carolina are pulling their water off of well water. So they're leaching down into the water supply, into the drinking water supply of populations around South Carolina. If they're in their rivers, for example, plastics, a lot is said about plastics. We are seeing about eight to 10 million metric tons of plastic go in our oceans every year. So why should we care? And the reason why I think people don't care is because they don't know what that plastic is made out of. All right, so I've, I've, I've told you, Craig, I represent energy companies. To be clear, I don't want there to be any confusion. I mean oil and gas companies. Plastic is a petroleum product. It's made out of petroleum products. So when we put plastics into our food chain, we are putting carcinogens in our food chain. And when you begin to look at why are cancer rates going up, it's really where environment meets epidemiology, where environment meets healthcare. Litter matters. It, it matters not just because in the book of Leviticus, it talks about thou shalt not defile my, my garden. There's a reason why the Lord said that, because we are destroying our temples. We are destroying we're creating our own healthcare problems. By it's not just an aesthetic issue of how bad it looks. It's a healthcare issue. If it was just an aesthetic issue, I frankly 
I wouldn't like it, but I wouldn't be so passionate. But knowing that there are innocent people who are being penalized because we can't take time to take better care of the Lord's garden, I do become fairly passionate. Well, it's funny you'd mentioned the aesthetic issue. I actually uh, j- just just uh, yesterday recorded a podcast on aesthetics and the Christian life because, um, yes, there's more to it than just the aesthetics. But we, we do have to keep in mind that, that God is beautiful. God has given us this beautiful creation. And as he has uh, charged us, as uh, to use uh, an old word, as vice regents over this world to care for it, yes. um, we do have some degree of responsibility to be concerned with, uh, when we speak of the beauty, we're not just speaking of necessarily the appearance, but we're speaking of of, of it functioning according to its its intention, of it, it uh, appearing according to its intention of, of it. Um, being essentially the way that God gave it to us, right? I mean, if I allow you to borrow my truck, I expect that when you bring it back to me, it's not going to have any more dents in it than it had when it left, right? I expect that you're not going to leave your your drink, your, your cups and your wrappers and everything laid all in it. It, it. We should bring it back. But So we do have a responsibility to be concerned about the aesthetic because God has given us this beautiful world and he's told us to tend it, to have dominion, to, to exercise dominion. And, and that means to actually improve upon it. Amen. It should be better when we leave it. Now, one of the things that that dominion carries with it is not only this environmental aspect, I, I believe that dominion carries with it all sorts of things, architectural, civil engineering, the the, the expansion of civilization, all those other things matter as a part of it. But but uh, so I, I don't want to take away from what you're saying as it relates to our uh, the, the, the health aspect of it. But I just want to make sure that we don't miss sort of the aesthetic aspect of it, because I think it does matter. It, it doesn't matter as much, but it, it still matters. It matters. It, it's the Lord's garden. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's before we you and I go long on this longer on this. Uh, let's let's come back to some of these theological things. So, um, you're you're doing doctoral level research and, and writing a dissertation right now on not just on the environment, but on evangelicals and their engagement with the environment. And and that's actually how you and I met. I, I, I engaged you in a conversation with you, interview for your dissertation on this. And I think one of the questions that you asked as a part of that was why have evangelicals maybe not been super engaged with it, with, with the environment? And I think the issue first and foremost is because as evangelicals, like our primary goal is, as a, as a, as a Christian is to see other people come to know Jesus. That's always going to be primary for me. It's everything else is going to fall into the background, but I think we've also um, lost that disconnect with a bigger picture of um, of what it looks like to engage with God's garden, with God's creation, and, and with creation care. So, um, in your work, um, what what concerns are, are, are sort of bubbling to the surface uh, as it relates to the way the church is or isn't engaging this issue? I think that there's three three issues that have sort of risen to the top on on the reluctance. And I, I frankly find tremendous support uh, myself in these. I understand them. I don't think it's the end of the conversation. The first is the um, refusal to deify nature and sort of the Old Testament, which is a 
I, I think is is very solid theology. Well, and I think can, can I just interrupt you? Like yes, there is, it, it's a reaction because it's especially early in the environmental movement, and, and to some degree continuing, but there was that 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 extreme environmental perspective that was that you know this is mother earth that we're protecting so there is that that react we we tend to swing the pendulum the other way right i agree i think that it'll all sort of come together with the third oh well then i'll um, listen no no that's okay because i i'm going to tell you exactly why uh i think is at the root of this and the second is just eschatology and the end of times and there is a great deal to be said about that. But the third, which I think is really the driving issue that some have mentioned, some have alluded to, is that this whole issue of the environment has been hijacked by liberal politicians. And it's being what you see it being played out today. And I'm so let me be perfectly clear for your listeners who view this issue within political terms that that I have had dives in every ocean. I've climbed summited mountains on every continent. I, I'm, I think my environmental uh, CV is sufficient. I'm 100% opposed to the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord has failed. Like, you're, like we are seeing further hijacking of this issue. And the problem is unless people of God step forward, we are, we are leaving a blank slate for this very important issue to be to be written by people whose views are not Christocentric. That's what I believe. We cannot leave the blackboard open for others to write the narrative. It's too important because I'll tell you, Craig, as I've gone around, when the environment does change and the pollution and the things that are impacting, ultimately the flock of Christians is gonna want leadership. And to me, the great thing about evangelicals is they always given context to people's lives and people are beginning to suffer because of this issue. And it has been hijacked by liberal politicians and it continues to be. So I think that third reason sort of sums it up. Sorry. No, 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 don't, don't apologize. I, I, I told you when we got on, I, I crunched in three podcast interviews. I normally do these about one a week. I crunched in three in the past couple of days. And so, uh, everything's just fresh. And my most recent one was with an, an old college roommate friend of mine who is uh, a professor down at MUSC, and he and I engaged in the conversation. So he and I are, are, are very different uh, theologically and politically, um, which was a big part of the reason we had the conversation. But we did talk about how so much of, of the church has been hijacked even by political ambition and, and, and how easily we as Americans are being manipulated by politicians yes. by their effort to sort of speak to the things that, that we value. And so, um, you know, we, we spoke specifically in this case about a, a abortion and how my, one of my concerns is that as, as a, a, a right-leaning uh, political person, um, I don't, I, I hear a whole lot of talk about abortion on the right, but I don't see a whole lot of change coming from those folks. They say things they want to get my vote, but they don't actually do anything about it. Right. And I think that that's a lot of what we're seeing on the environmental issue. The only people speaking about it are those that are trying to appeal to the far left. And we're missing out on the opportunity for those people of God who, who are not naturalists. We're not, we, we, there's a difference between a naturalistic worldview that says this world is all there is and we've got to do everything we can 
in a, in a Christocentric theistic worldview or Christocentric, especially worldview, as you mentioned, where we say there is a God over all of this. We're not worshiping this world. Instead, we worship the God who gave it to us and we have a responsibility to care for it and minister uh, in such a way that we protect it. So I think if you view the reluctance on that, the, the challenge is to begin to carve out a position. What I've seen, and I, I welcome being corrected, is that oftentimes people have taken one position or the other, and they built books and doctrine around those two positions, rather than looking at it in a balanced way, which I take you all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's that balance that we have to, and there's a balance, theological balance. We can't deify. We have to understand that the book of Revelation is scripture, that there will be a new earth, that Christ will return, but that we do have an obligation to protect and not to defile his nature, his garden. He was the first gardener, not Adam. Mm -hmm. God was. The garden was there when Adam got there. He created. And so I tell you, people read these verses and skip right over them. So I would just, you know, refer you to the first chapter of Genesis where he makes a value statement. He makes a value statement when he says that he, and God saw that it, there was light and it was good. And God saw that there was, there was plants and it was good. He didn't just make it when he made it, when he created it, he finished it by saying, and it was good. So if you want to be in that group that gets separated to be judged harshly, and have to explain why you drive down the road and throw your garbage out in God's backyard. Help yourself. But my reading of scripture is we shall not defile his, his garden. Yeah. And, and I mean, we even have, uh, as, as, if we consider ourselves as sojourners, right, or as exiles, we can run to the book of Jeremiah where Amen. we're told to seek the welfare of the city around us, right? And and just part of our loving our neighbor as ourselves. What does that look like for even something you talk about groundwater runoff. What does that look like for me tending to uh, the things um, that I have and, and making sure that I care well for those people around me? So, uh, Tom, this is, has really been a great conversation. I, I'm grateful that you'd be willing to do this. You've got uh, a wealth of knowledge and information. What's so fun for me is, is that this is passionate for you, right? This is this is a fun conversation for you to have. Do it every day if you'd like to. <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, but I, I just I think it's important for um, for folks that maybe haven't had the opportunity to have this conversation to to, to be challenged uh, to, to to think about what our responsibility is in creation care from a micro level and a macro level and then to see the way that it all works together it's it's true like it it really is Craig Thompson all by himself is probably not going to do anything that really significantly moves the needle one way or the other as it relates to climate change. That, that's probably true. Um, but, uh, but I certainly can do the things that move the needle as it relates to um, Kershaw County and, and to you know, my, my own area and even my own neighbors. And, and then as a pastor, I've got a responsibility to stand before my people and, and remind folks that God has given this to us as a gift and it's our responsibility to steward it well because we're not here forever. And, but I, I would simply say that the Lord has great things in mind for Craig Thompson. <laughs> He's a brilliant leader and pastor. And so, you are going to send ripples that change the world. And we're going to do it starting right here today. Well, brother, I sure appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, but uh, uh, listen, um, uh, any, any closing words before, I, before we sign off here today? Just 
thank you so much for all that you do and be happy to come back. These are complicated subjects and we can probably spend a great deal more time on the macro and the micro and, and happy to do it. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much, Tom. Of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. I hope that you will use the information in this podcast to encourage you to love Jesus in the ordinary aspects of your daily life. Jesus surrounded himself with very ordinary people who made a difference in the world because of their Savior. You can make a difference too. If you would like to read more of my writings or find other podcasts, you can find information about me on my website at www.craigthompson.org. For information about Malvern Hill Baptist Church and sermons from our church, go to our website at www.malvernhill.org. Until next time, use the ordinary margins of your life to make an extraordinary difference in the world around you.